0: All right, let's put that there. We will pretend that that's going to work. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Equip on a Sunday morning. We're taking a detour from 1 Peter because we didn't expect the people on the schedule to be in other places this morning, but they are. So uh, Wade had an opportunity to go back to uh, Colorado uh, to serve people back there in a way in he was serving at a funeral. He's doing the funeral for a family that he knew there. Um, so he took that opportunity to go serve his old congregation. Uh, so that's where Wade is. And I'll announce it in the second hour, but Chris uh, it had, his, had his sixth child. Well, he didn't have it. Angie had his sixth child uh, yesterday. Yeah, so they're, they're all doing great. Um, so we're going to take a detour from 1 Peter together this morning. And we're going to go through, which is actually a pretty cool correlation passage of Philippians chapter 4, 10 to 14. And where we're heading is this idea of contentment, the pursuit of contentment. And from that pursuit of contentment, it ties to 1 Peter, because if you remember the, the theme of the book of First Peter is to stand firm in suffering, right? So if we're going to stand firm in suffering then it will aid us in that process to remind ourselves this morning of the pursuit of contentment and really four outcomes that we're going to go through for this pursuit of contentment, or four outcomes you'll receive from this pursuit of contentment. And that's where we're running from chapter 4 of Philippians, verses 10 to 14. So as we get started, let's go ahead and, and pray. Lord, we are so grateful this morning that we could be wrestling around in your word. Uh, Lord, that you, you tell us so clearly that you have given us everything that we need for life and godliness in the book of First Peter. And Lord, you also tell us uh, that your word is profitable for everything we need, for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Thank you that you have given us your word to guide our lives. Like Psalm 119, 105 says, as a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. And uh, Lord, we are so thankful for that. We praise you this morning for being so great, for taking care of all of us in the midst of all of the different trials and blessings you put in our lives, and your so- providentially and your sovereign will. And Lord, we pray for Wade as he's serving a family back, uh, back where his old church was. We pray for Chris and Angie as they are welcoming in their their newborn, uh, newborn baby boy. And Lord, we pray for this morning that we would worship you well in this hour as we study your word about contentment, and in the next hour as we go to Hebrews. Lord, we thank you so much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, welcome. Yeah, come on in, grab seats. Uh, we Again, like I was saying, we are going to look at four outcomes of contentment. Those four outcomes of contentment are, this is a really simple slide deck. There are three. There's the one. Here's the next one, right? It has all four outcomes on there. Uh, but one of them is rejoicing in the Lord, is one outcome of contentment. The next is encouragement through your obedience, is the second. The third that we will talk about is, um, oh, I lost it, there it is, the uh, relying on Christ's strength. And then the fourth one is thankfulness, where we can rejoice with others in thankfulness. So that's where we're running with with the four outcomes of contentment this morning. So I look forward to diving in that with you. Your, go to your Bibles, chapter 4 of Philippians, verses 10 to 14, and we will read our passage, starting in verse 10 of chapter 4 of Philippians. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have received your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. So the theme of Philippians, I pushed all the buttons. All right, the theme of Philippians is uh, basic, basic Christian living. And if you look at our section of chapter 4, our theme, what we're going to see is that in any and all circumstances, we contentedly rejoice in the Lord because of his provision. When we stop and trust in his provision, that's when all of this comes about so let's tackle the first outcome this is verse 10 is where we find our first outcome of Philippians chapter 4 I'll read it again but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me indeed you were concerned before but you lacked opportunity this word rejoice is be glad it's rejoice be joyful but the question is in what rejoice in the Lord and in this in this context where Paul is if you remember in the book of Philippians he wrote this from prison He's currently chained to a Roman guard. He doesn't know if he's going to get out yet or not. So when we think of our connection to 1 Peter and standing firm in suffering, Paul's writing this in the midst of a trial, which we would all classify as suffering. But he's had a a breath of fresh air come to him through his fellow servant, uh, Epaphroditus, who came and brought a gift from the Philippians. And so he's rejoicing in the Lord greatly. And he's rejoicing in the Lord, and this word greatly is this idea of mega- and yes, Epaphroditus did just show up. And yes, he did bring sustenance and physical things. But it's not just for that that Paul's really excited. He's really excited that this relationship that he had with the Philippians is renewed and is restored. And it's happening again. Back in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, you see his heart for the Philippians as he's writing this letter back to them. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. That's where his heart is. This is a group of people that are participating in the same gospel that he loves, from the same Redeemer, the same Jesus that he loves. And he just got a great bit of fresh news that the separation time has actually been about 10 years since he last heard about them, last heard from them. And they're walking in the faith. They're continuing. So this is terrific for him. So he's rejoicing in the Lord greatly because of that. And he, and he says, now at last, in verse 10, and when we think of that phrase, at least when I didn't, in English today, now at last, it makes you like, finally. But that's not Paul's intent when he says that, because look at what follows after that. He says, now at last, you have revived your concern for me. And in the language time, in the, in, in the, the time of the Romans, in the time where the, excuse me, Philippi was also a Roman colony... And so they had this context inside of the Roman civilization. There was this idea of now at last you revive concern for me is really language of we are great friends and I haven't heard from you in a while and now I got to hear from you in a while. So imagine that you got a piece of news from someone, a postcard, a letter that you hadn't heard from in a long time, not because of distance, just life circumstances, and how that would just kindle afresh this idea of true friendship inside of you. And this word revived is like a plant flowering again in spring. So you can see that over time, there was a gap, there was a lull during the winter, but now it's come forth, it's, it's uh, blooming again. Because he says, indeed, you were concerned before. So Epaphroditus let him know, we never stopped loving you, we never stopped caring about you. But what does he say next? He said that you didn't have opportunity, you lacked opportunity, and that's the word in this agricultural example for seasons. It was just out of season for the Philippians to be continuing to write to him, to get messages to him, They didn't know where he was. He's bouncing around all over the place. Text messages were not there at that time. But he's rejoicing in this idea that God has providentially brought Epaphroditus to him in Rome. He didn't know he was coming. While he's in prison and he's suffering. And now he's got this restored relationship with these people that he shared the gospel with. And he now knows that they are walking in the faith. That is providence. And that's why he can rejoice so I want to take a, a quick sidestep into this idea of providence. Providence is God working his sovereign will out in our lives without interrupting us. The converse of providence is a miracle, right? So if someone think of a miracle in the Bible that you can just off the top of your head and show me, that was a miracle. There's one about the baby Jesus that comes right in there. Say it again. The parting of the Red Sea. That is a miracle. Is it natural for the waters to separate and stand in walls on the other side and immediately the ground underneath to be dry for people to walk across it? Is that natural? Oh, no. Anything where God intervenes in our lives and it is outside our flow of reality, outside of our natural, that's a miracle. Providence is where he intervenes in our lives and we don't know until we look backwards and say, ooh, sovereignly God was doing this, that, and the other thing. So as we think about providence, I want you to get the weight of how supernatural providence is when you think of all the things that God is orchestrating throughout our lives to get us to hear and everything he needed to do to nudge, bump, shift, convict, and we never knew until we look backwards. So when we think about providence, it's actually more amazing, in my opinion, than a miracle. They're both supernatural, but miracles catch your eye in the moment. You're like, ooh, that, that is not normal. But providence, we don't even see until we look backwards. So, Paul is reveling and rejoicing in the Lord because he's watching God provide for him in that way. And it's founded in this love that he has for the Philippians, the love that he has for the Lord. Now, a believer can have this type of rejoicing because their heart is different. Their heart is new. Their heart is, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, is one that is a new heart. The old man has passed away. The new heart, the new man has come because they've confessed of their sins, they've repented, they trusted in the Lord for their salvation. And so we can have that. We can rejoice in the Lord greatly because of His provision of salvation, because of His provision for our daily needs in life, and His provision for sustenance and sufficiency through grace in any trial that we're in. For believers, for folks that may not have made that act of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, this this type of joy in God's providence isn't available for them. So our call for even in this room um, is that you would think about where am I with the Lord, and I have this opportunity to see Him as a loving Savior, as who came on the, He sent His Son to come onto the cross and die for my behalf, lived a perfect life for thirty three years, substituted His perfect life for my unrighteousness and paid all my sins and your sins too. And he, just, and, he, and he says, repent and believe and you will be saved. And this same type of rejoicing in the Lord can be yours. That wraps up our first outcome of pursuing contentment. You pursue contentment through God's provision and that rejoicing is there. Which gets us to our second outcome of pursuing contentment, which is encouragement through when we obey. We're going to see in Paul's life how he went about obeying and how he handled provision and contentment. And it's going to encourage us. And we can see the same thing when we do it in our lives and we can see it in others today when say, hey, they are marching forward in Christ through trial. And that is hard, but they're obeying and that's encouraging. So look at verse 12, or verses 11 and 12, and we'll see this. It says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means and I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. So through Paul's perspective, this idea of I'm not speaking from want, I've learned to be content. It's a choice. He's made a choice in all of these circumstances of his life that God has brought him. And it's his choices. I'm going to be content in what God provides for me. And contentment isn't just a choice. It is a choice, but it's also a command. Hebrews 13.5 says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So like every one of Christ's commands, it is weighty, but it is not burdensome. Because what did he say at the end of verse 5 of Hebrews 13? He says, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. He will always provide for us. So Paul's not speaking from want, is what he says. So we have to take a quick detour into, well, then what is speaking from want? What is that? It's this idea of meet my needs. If we approach any scenario with, are my needs being met? What do I want out of this? Then that is speaking from want. The commentator James Montgomery Boyce and his commentary on Philippians tells this story to get this idea across. He says, do you know how animal dealers sometimes catch monkeys? Monkeys are greedy creatures who be caught by a combination of curiosity, greed, and ingenuity. The animal trainers take a number of narrow-mouthed jars and they place some shiny beads in each jar. The monkeys then come upon these jars and they see those shiny beads and they immediately take their hands and get them inside the mouth of the jar and grab a hold of those beads. And because a fist is of greater diameter than your narrow hand, the monkeys are caught. They try to withdraw their hand out of that jar, but they cannot. Instead of letting go of those bees to figure out how to escape, they hold on tightly, even while the animal trainers then come and kindly and safely capture them to train them um, and then let them free of those jars. And he says, we're like those monkeys. We can get caught like that where I see a need, I want to grab it, and I'm going to hold on tight. And I'm going to resist... Trusting in the Lord because I want what I want. That is someone who's speaking from want. Paul's saying, I'm not speaking from want. Then then where is he speaking from? He's speaking from a place of contentment. In Colossians chapter 3, 1 to 2, he shares his heart this way. He says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Common verse for us. If you don't want to seek your own needs and have your own needs be met and be focused like that, Paul gives us the right instructions. He says, set your mind on the things above. Your will is different now. A redeemed heart is a slave of Christ and righteousness. Our needs need to be what God needs for us, his purposes for us, his will for us. Earlier in the book of Philippians, chapter 3, 7-11, he says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And we could stop right there. That's a heart that is not speaking from want. That's how he can be content in his experiences. He's living for the sake of Christ. Continuing on in verse 8 of chapter 3, he says, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Paul's trust in the Lord for his provision in every circumstance, and he's pursuing contentment, and as he obeys, he's encouraged because he sees God's provision come to him, even like Epaphroditus bringing this gift at a time that he didn't expect it and bringing these encouraging news of his friends, the Philippians, and how they're following the Lord still. But Paul takes us a little bit further through his experience and sets up three different brackets for us, three of these pairings, so for us to, to know exactly how we should be thinking about this. He says, I know how, which is I've learned through experience to get along with humble means as well as to know how to live in prosperity. Giant bookends, the spectrum, humble means to live in prosperity. And he says, I've learned the secret, again, through experience. I know, I've lived this, of being filled and going hungry and then the third pairing of having abundance and suffering need. We all fit within those spectrums somewhere, some shape, somehow, even in our current lives, current experiences today. As we suffer, as we grow, as we're blessed, as we're in trials, these pairings show us that Paul's been through there, and so we can take encouragement through there because he obeyed. And we can look around even our own congregation where people are suffering, and what are they doing? They're trusting the Lord in that suffering and their trials and be encouraged through their obedience. This idea of contentment, that uh, in, in, in this passage, in this culture, is coming from a group that they call the Stoics. If you're familiar with that word of being Stoic, it's that unfeeling, I won't let emotions get my way, I won't let physical strain get my way, just so I can be steadfast. And he's taken that idea of someone having the iron willpower to be like that, and he's saying, well, what? that is a man-centered thought. And he's taken that idea and he applies it in the context of how God gives us purposes, and God gives us strength, and God gives us everything we need for every need, and he's living that out. A couple examples from Paul's life and his writings. One from Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. It says He says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. And you can see his life there as he's writing to the Corinthians is, what's the purpose? Your purpose is that you can have an abundance for every good deed, the good deed that God has given you to do. Not so you can have everything you want for yourself. And he's going to give And how is he going to give it to you? having all-sufficiency in everything, so that you may have an abundance for every good deed. God will supply every need we have. In First Timothy 6, verses six to eight, when, he's writing, when Paul's writing to Timothy, he says this, he says, "But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. If we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. As he writes to his young protege, pastor in Ephesus, he encourages him that that pursuit of contentment is recognized by godliness as our means of great gain. And if we have just what God provides for us, then we can be content. And then a, a hallmark verse that Paul wrote to the, the church in Rome, Romans 8.28 your minds know this. And it says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. When we pursue his purposes, when an obedient lifestyle and trust in his provision, we have contentment. We can achieve contentment. Paul showed us that in his experiences, and he encourages us to look at our current situations in life too and say, is that how I'm Living An op- opportunity for us to apply God's word to our lives, even just this morning, is to say, how am I going about the pursuit of my wants? Am I the monkey with the shiny beads and I know what I want? I'm not going to let go or am I going, well, my wants aren't mine. I'm dead in Christ, risen again through his baptism, and I'm going to pursue his will for my life. And he's going to provide everything I need for that. It's a good opportunity to reflect. Up our second outcome of being encouraged through Paul's obedience and every believer's obedience through trial to see contentment. So let's go to our third outcome of contentment, which is relying on Christ's strength. Relying on Christ's strength. So this is verse four, chapter four, verse thirteen. One of those verses in Scripture that is used a lot out of context. Let's make sure we get it inside of context. It says, I can do all things. Through him who strengthens me. So really see where Paul's mind is coming from when he says this. We need to back up to see how did Paul live his life? What was his normal? And we can see that just earlier in chapter 4, verses 4 to 9. We'll back up just a little bit on chapter 4, we'll see it, verses 4 to 9. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, If there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. When you think of Paul's model of how he lived, what are some hallmark things that you see in there? In verse 4, there was a word repeated twice with a timeline. What is that word? Rejoice. And what's the timeline? Always. That's where he starts. Rejoice in the Lord. Always. right? And then he continues and he says, let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. He approaches life with a humble spirit. He's going to come inside of every context and he's not going to be the loud, boisterous, look at me, pay attention to me. He's serving the Lord for the Lord's purposes. He's going to come into that context and be the gentle spirit that's there. That doesn't mean weak. That doesn't mean... Not forceful; it just means appropriate for the moment, to where he's going to be a balm, a balm to all those folks when he's in that situation, and representing the Lord well. He's going to be gentle in spirit. Verse six is very common. How should we approach all these trials that we run into? Carefully, with thanksgiving, so that we won't be anxious you it's right there you're you're crushing this it's right there in the text he says be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God so he's approaching all these situations that way this is a model of someone's life that Paul tells us emulate him he ran this race well and then if you have that attitude that prayerful attitude as you see these trials, what's the result you have peace in the midst of wherever you are. Remember, Paul is currently chained to a Roman citizen, a Roman soldier in a prison cell. And he's writing. And he's allowed to have guests, but there's this guy that's there this whole time. So remember, this, he's, this is a trial. This is hard. And he says, yet I can still have peace, and not just peace, but it surpasses all comprehension. And it guards his heart and his mind and ours too in Christ Jesus. And then finally, what does he dwell on? What does he allow his mind space to be taken up with? Truth? Things that are honorable? There's a pattern. That are worthy of praise, that are of good repute, that are lovely, things that are godly. So if we think, all right, there's Paul in his situation. There's Paul in that prison cell. There's Paul with this gift, this, this restored relationship with the Philippians, and he's rejoicing. And we see that he rejoices always. He's humble. He's always remembering the Lord is near. That's how his mind is working. He's not anxious, but rather prayerful with thanksgiving and confidence. He's at peace. And he dwells on God's Word, and he lives it out. That is the lifestyle the map of someone that can then say in verse 13, I can do all things through him him who strengthens me. Because that verse, as we all know, does not apply to the person that is realizing they have an exam the next day and they have not prepared well or an important meeting at work and they have not prepared well. Or a hard conversation that's coming up there, you know, we, uh, that's coming up and they haven't prepared well, you see the pattern. That verse is not applicable to that scenario. This verse applies to a life lived like Paul's, where everything he has is doing the Lord's purposes and he's doing it the Lord's way. Then we can see how he can say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And that all things in that verse in, in the order of the Greek is, comes first, which means it's most emphasized. Paul's writing to the Philippians and saying, in every circumstance you find yourself in, and they were suffering too. We'll see that in a second. In every circumstance you find yourself in, this is true. There isn't anything that God will have us do that he doesn't supply or ever need to do it. We looked at that earlier. And we look at Paul's purpose in life and how the things, all things that he needed, he was strengthened in to align with what Christ's purpose for his life was. An example out of Philippians chapter 3. Verses 9 to 11. He says, And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. His, that's his purpose in life. That's how he thought. That's what he wanted in life. Go back to verse 10 and look at that again. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's a hard thought to say, I'm, I want to suffer. And not in this martyr way, not in this look at me way, but I want to suffer like Christ suffered. Why? Because that means I look the most like Christ and I've ever looked to the world. Is that they see the they see Christ the most in me in those moments. That's why they would attack. That's why you would suffer. It's when we can say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This, this idea of strength means it's infused from Christ. It's in Christ. It's, it's not this idea that you could... Um, I saw on the news that someone said, I'm going to go on a hunger strike to prove my point. It's not this idea that you can... I, I, can, I can just you know limit all possibility of, of surviving and Christ is still going to strengthen me. It is not that. It is the idea that I am going to live my life for Christ and in every situation he puts me, he will strengthen me to accomplish his purposes. Which is such a comforting thought. In the midst of trial especially, in the midst of suffering especially, when you think, how can you keep going? And he promises, it's a promise that Christ will strengthen you to do that. An example out of Paul's life, out of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, is he's writing to them, where he lived this out. Verse 7, he says, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul the Apostle asked God to relieve him of this torment three times. If you're thinking about a time of suffering where you're at your end, this is an example that you can know that Paul has lived this this is true. And God's answer, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. There's not a circumstance that God's going to put us in that he's not going to pull us through. So the question for us is, where do we run to in those times of trial for strength? Do we run to ourselves? Do we run to relationships around us? Do we run to comfort of some kind? Or do we run to Christ, just like Paul did, and here. God's words say my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness and, and, our, and be encouraged by that. So that rounds out our third outcome of pursuing contentment is to do that we have to rely on Christ's strength. So we've seen we rejoice in the Lord greatly. We've seen we're encouraged through obedience. We've seen that we rely on Christ's strength and we're getting our fourth, Christ's strength. And we have our fourth outcome now which is thankfulness. Thankfulness is an outcome of pursuing contentment. Verse 14 says, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. This idea of nevertheless, again, in our current vernacular, can sound like a negative idea. But really, it's a pastoral heartfelt idea as he's writing a letter to the Philippians that he's not going to get to convey, right? Epaphrodite's going to take it back. And they just sent a gift. Physical needs as well as the relational restoration that he's rejoicing about and he just said i can do all things through christ who strengthens me which could be taken as thanks but i didn't i didn't need it's appreciated but thanks that's not his intent that's not what he wants to convey so he wants to have them catch their eye to this part in his letter where he says nevertheless like that is all true that is all true but this is important what i have to say next He says, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Think about the Philippians. How do we know that they're sharing with Paul in his affliction? Yes, they physically gave when they are poor. That's an example. That is true. They did that, and they did that. This is now their third time to send him a gift like this to support him in his ministry. And in none of those times did they have a surplus. But he's also heard this update from Epaphroditus. He also knows that the believers there are running well. He also knows that they're loving one another. He also knows that, in a specific example, they are sharing an affliction. And he wrote that earlier in his letter, in Philippians chapter 1, 29-30. He says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. He writes that to them because Epaphroditus shared... That they're in the same conflicts as what this is. They're in similar conflicts as you are right now. He knows they're suffering for Christ and he is rejoicing and thankful that they can share that. In Philippians chapter 2 verse 17, he says, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. They're, they're being poured out in Philippi where they live. They're living for Christ. Epaphroditus got this, brought this great, encouraging, rejoicing update where they're living and suffering and in trial and obeying and standing up well. They're standing firm and suffering. And he's encouraged. And he's encouraged by that. And we get to ask ourselves that question. We have around us that we look to, like the people that are closest to us, we can see like Paul's thankful because he sees these believers living out there christian life well these people that he shared the gospel with and brought to faith living out their lives well and who do we have who do we surround ourselves with relationally to encourage us like that that we can be thankful that we are sharing in affliction with them and then if we have like yeah i know these people these people these people then my encouragement to you just after service this afternoon send them a note let them know that they've encouraged you by the way that they're standing firm and suffering by the way that they live for christ Because that shared joy, that reciprocation of that relationship is a place where great contentment can come from. And you both can walk away encouraged. So in summary, we covered four outcomes for the pursuit of contentment. The first one was rejoicing. And not just rejoicing a little bit, but mega rejoicing. Rejoicing in the Lord greatly. And recognizing that His providence is supernatural. He organizes everything through time without us seeing it, but yet it arrives right when we need it to do His work, to do His purposes. He always, as we looked at in Romans 8.28, does good for us to move us towards Christ's likeness through His purposes. We can rejoice. We can mega-rejoice. The second outcome was we can be encouraged through obedience. And we saw Paul's experiences, how whether in very little or in very much, whether it's physical or relational or situational, we saw that he had plans too. And God directed his steps to places that he never thought he might go. Sometimes in places he thought, I'm going to go over here, and God says, no, hard, hard pivot. You're actually going to go to Macedonia. But yet he obeyed, regardless of the circumstances. The third one we saw, that when we rely on Christ's strength, that helps us in our pursuit of contentment, which is a promise of Christ to do his work, to empower us to do everything we need to do, everything. There's not something that we're going to be too weak for, as long as we are modeling, just like Paul did, <clears throat> to live that life well in Christ. And then the last one was thankfulness, not only for his provision of physical needs, which the Philippians brought, but also that relationship. Remember, it was a 10 year gap since he had heard from these people, from these people that he loves. And it wasn't because of anything negative, it was just he'd been bouncing around in the ministry field and they hadn't been able to send anything to him and figure out what he was. And then they find him in Rome and they send him a gift. And not only a gift, but this update of we're living for Christ too. And it's so encouraging. So much thankfulness comes from there. The bottom line is this, is that in every circumstance, Christ commands us to contentedly rejoice in his provision, just like Paul and the Philippians are. And they're a wonderful illustration for us to follow. So I have a couple asks for you to evaluate as we exit. One is where is the source of joy in your life? Is it my needs are being met? Or is it I'm living for the Lord and recognizing His sovereign will and His providence in my life to equip me for everything I need? The second is consider the purpose that you live by. We saw Paul's purpose in Philippians 3.10. And the Westminster Confession wraps it up too. It says glorify God and enjoy Him forever, which is not live this life for you now. And then the last one for us to evaluate our lives in the context of this passage as we pursue contentment is examine those relationships. The people that you let in close. Are they the people like the Philippians to Paul that build him up? Or are they the people that pull you down? And uh, if we're going to pursue contentment, we have to be careful about who we let in close. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, your word is so clear, and it is so good, and it is so full of promise and hope and encouragement. Um, Lord, this morning you have taught us that in every circumstance, as we live out your purposes for our lives, you will provide everything in an abundance of need to do what we need to do. Lord, that is an excellent promise, and we praise you. Not only that you've made the promise, but that you fulfill it. And every saint in this room and throughout history, and in the example of the letter from Paul to the Philippians, we see that it's true. And we see that you, you fulfill your promise over and over and over and over again. Lord, let that be a cause for us just this morning to worship you as we make our transition now into our second service Lord, order to go study how Christ is superior over all things and what are the ramifications and implications of that. Lord, help us to worship you this morning as we pursue contentment in our own circumstances, knowing that you'll provide. We pray this thing in Jesus' name. Amen.